these omni-channel proficiencies are now table stakes. It's a non-negotiable. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 24, and today's guest is Mickey Berardelli. Before we get started, a quick thank you as always to Max Brandstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready? Break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook Podcast. Today, I'm joined by longtime industry friend, Mickey Berardelli. Mickey is the founder of Mickey B LLC. She's currently serving as a board and advisory board member with various consumer brands, helping them scale through transformation and industry-leading digital proficiency. She's held senior marketing and digital roles with Ralph Lauren, Tori Birch, Chico's, and most recently, she was the CEO of Kidbox. Mickey, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. How are you and your family uh, uh, faring in our pandemic? Well, we're hanging in there. Both of my boys are teenagers, so I have a senior and a sophomore. So they are self-starting and doing completely online right now. And I feel for some of my friends who have younger kids and are trying to juggle being an at-home teacher in addition to their workload. Yeah, it's uh, definitely tough. One of the things I like to do uh, just to kind of get the, the level set for everybody is, is talk a little bit about uh, what we call the first story, kind of you know, where you grew up, um, how perhaps your upbringing might have you know, kind of set the path for you in, in what you ultimately have done in your career. Um, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up about 60 miles west of Chicago in a small town. It was about 10,000 population during my childhood and very Norman Rockwell-esque. I started working when I was nine years old where I had a paper route delivering newspapers to about 60 homes every day after school and on Sunday mornings as well. So I think that's where the work ethic and um, the enjoyment of making my own money <laughs> kicked in. Then I followed, uh, I actually went to University of Iowa for my undergrad studies. And my original dream was to become a broadcast journalist. Um, and the Iowa School of Communications had one of the best programs in the country at the time. And, and I grew up the child of two Illinois grads. So Big Ten football games were table stakes. So during my time there is when I, began the love of marketing, um, both in terms of the curriculum and just the curiosity. And my first job out of undergraduate was with a creative um, marketing communications firm outside of Chicago, where you know I learned the art of marketing. Interesting. And, and I don't know if, uh, I think you'll remember this. So you know, I had, uh, you're, you're married to somebody that was in the print industry. Um, I don't know, maybe he still is. And I, I knew him uh, from the days of uh, working at R.R. Donnelly, and I was working for a catalog business. And I, um, I did not remember ever having met you before, but I asked your husband to introduce us, and, and he did. And this is many years ago now. And when you and I first chatted, you reminded me that we actually had met 
uh, a number of years before that at a company called Direct Tech. So what, what did you do at Direct Tech? So, and I was 24 years old when that meeting took place. And I, re I recall being a little intimidated by you back then, <laughs> but with, with the utmost respect um, because you really knew your stuff. So I served as an account manager where I was essentially a quarterback across multiple departments of the company. So where my first job out of college was really studying the art of marketing. This was studying the science of marketing. And we worked with all the great direct-to-consumer brands back in the day. This was in the mid to late 90s. And all the great catalogs that used to fill our mailboxes. And did everything from building and designing databases to helping with segmentation and circulation planning to analytical services to list rentals and everything that went, went into that world. And I feel very fortunate that I had that first decade of my career with an equal balance on art and science because it certainly served me well throughout my career since. Yeah, you took the words, you know, kind of right out of my mouth. I was going to ask you about that balance between art and science, you know, the roles that you've had, and we'll get to some of those brands in a bit, you know, clearly have been higher end required aesthetic, uh, the creative aesthetic and, and high end, higher end. Um, so that balance was not uncomfortable for you then. No, I actually find it to be a very healthy tension. It doesn't make every day at the office easy. Um, there are people who are very left left-brained and, and right-brained. And so being, you know, sort of um, a hybrid in that space or bilingual, if you will, a lot of the work I needed to do was to work between those two, create, you know, the creative groups and the more analytical groups to establish common ground. So, and that, you know, that's certainly been true throughout my entire career because I've always worked in fashion and emotional brands, if you will. So you, you leave Experian and now you go to the other side. And it's funny because in my career, I've been only on the brand side and we used to kid around that the provider side was the dark side. So <laughs> you, you left the dark side um, and went to the, the brand side. So tell us about Tween Brands and, and Justice. Yeah, so I was hired by a former client who took a new job to build a direct-to-consumer business from the ground up for Limited 2, which is now known as as you pointed out, Justice. And it was really exciting. Um, I think having those 10 years of being on the solution provider side or the agency side and then switching to the brand side also was valuable. It proved to be valuable because I had empathy for, <laughs> for those who were sitting on the other side of the table, especially during negotiations and so forth. But yeah, so we built, we had it was about a $555 million business at the time. We had hundreds of stores, but we did not have a direct-to-consumer business. So we launched that end-to-end, -end, started with a catalog, and then I quickly made the jump, and this is in the late 90s after I graduated uh, grad school, and quickly made the jump to, I said, I wanna, I wanna do the internet and e-commerce, because to me, it was just all the rules that I had learned about marketing, um, analysis, measurement, targeting, direct response, all of those buzzwords, were true in e-commerce and the digital space. It was just a new medium. And I was extremely curious about it and wanted to learn it as fast as possible. You know, the, the focus of this show, you know, although it's marketing, you know, we, one of the uh, promises to the listener is that we give them three takeaways that they can take back either to their personal life or to their business life. And, you know, one of the things that you just described is, you know, you made a leap into something that was not only 
maybe, well, maybe not outside of your comfort comfort zone, but it was different than what you were doing. And it was something that was kind of in its infancy with respect to the internet. So, you know, what would you say to folks that are kind of teetering about what they want to do in the future, how to make that leap, how to feel confident that they can make those kinds of changes? Right. Well, I've always found that leading with curiosity is a great skill and leads to exciting places. And if it's in a, if it doesn't lead to a good place, it certainly leads to a teaching moment. And I find myself aspiring, having had many managers and bosses over the years, that I, I aspire to, um, I learned a lot from them because they did lead with curiosity. And that's really what was driving me into the space. And by the way, at that time in retail, that wasn't an exceptionally um, popular <laughs> place to be because there was a lot of fear. There was, first of all, there was the, the burst of the bubble when a, a lot of e-commerce businesses, startups were being overvalued and that ultimately gave way. And also those who were traditional retailers and had spent their careers in the brick and mortar space felt a bit threatened by e-commerce and thought that it could potentially cannibalize their sales. So it was it was also a teaching role. It was an influencing role and an educating role, sort of bringing organizations along. And luckily, I had learned the science of marketing and understanding customer insights and intelligence and being able to leverage databases to build that story in a more fact-based manner. Yeah, so that must have been a, a great foundation for you digital-wise. Um, and then from there, you went to Ralph. Correct. And so talk about it being, you know, uh, having worked in an iconic brand um, with somebody, you know, the individual who founded the business um, still, I guess, at that point in time, still very much active in the business. Yes, very active. It was really a dream come true. I had moved to New York City to be with my now husband, then boyfriend at the time. I actually had lunch with, uh, I think, a mutual friend of ours named Ken Seif, who was the founder of Blue Fly and has been in the digital space for years. And um, I had met him very early in my career because we were this small group of people who had founded Shop.org, which is the digital division organization, and we were true believers. And I had lunch with him, and he asked me what brands I would love to work for in New York City. And Ralph Lauren was at the top of my list. And lo and behold, he was having dinner with one of the executives that same evening. And, you know, it's funny, this is before the day of our mobile devices. But he said, when you get home, when you get back to your apartment, email me your resume and I will get it in the hands of, of this executive. And I received a call the next morning and there happened to be the perfect job of director of marketing for the Ralph Lauren media part of the business, which was the e-com and online magazine sort of an innovation lab within the larger organization. And so how, how far into digital commerce were they at that time? They had launched the business in 2000, and this was the end of 2001, beginning of 2002. So the business was, you know, less than 20 million in annual sales. And we had a wild ride over eight years of building that business to well over 300 million in that time. And I know it's grown significantly since then. So that's also where I captured my love of, of high growth and working for the innovation high growth division of a company. Um, it was an interesting time because it was actually a joint venture. Ralph Lauren Media was a joint venture between Polo Ralph Lauren and NBC. So we had a separate board of directors and we were 
able to function in an R&D environment where we were constantly failing fast and, and trying new things and forging ahead in this digital space. And I think very much ahead of our time, certainly from a luxury brand perspective, it took a number of years before luxury brands believed that they could sell luxury products online. And also just in terms of this whole idea of marrying the beauty of content with commerce in a digital environment. And it seems that to some degree, those luxury brands like Apollo, you know, were kind of on the cutting edge, not only of digital commerce, but of believing that, yes, you can sell uh, a story online and balance it commercially, right? You know, I, I think there's a lot of businesses today that struggle with finding that, you know, there's this spectrum of being too commercial and, and too branding. Um, but back then, it seems like you were able to navigate your way through that. And luckily that started at the top because we had that healthy tension between the art and the science of the business in our leadership team. And it trickled all the way down through the organization and the magic happened when we struck in the middle of each of them. And we did some really innovative things that might, you know, seem sort of old school now, but we were, I think the first brand to leverage QR codes. And we had a touch digital window on one of our Madison Avenue stores where you could order product when the store was closed, you know, so it was this first foray into truly being uh, what is referred to as omni-channel today. And it was the business structured in in kind of silos. Did you, you know, have the the internal tension of, you know, it was obviously, I, I guess, back then, still a, a lot of a wholesale business. You had your own physical retail stores, and now you're this digital channel. Was there a lot of internal, you know, battling about cannibalization and and things like that? Well, I actually made it my job to connect with all of the store managers and the district managers and make sure that those relationships were sound and that I was taking part of my time, spending part of my time out in the field, talking to store associates, telling them the story of what the data said that when customers shop both of our channels at the time, um, we also had our factory store business, but I was primarily focused on the full price business for my first several years. And when those customers shopped across both channels, they spent more not only in total, because they've by definition shopped at least twice, but they actually spent more in stores than customers had not shopped both channels. So there was a lot of learning and influencing and education, but it really came down to building those relationships. At the same time that you were at uh, Ralph, I was at Brooks Brothers. Right. And um, I had uh, just gotten there and they, I, I went there um, to run the direct business. And in those days, it, they had a very nascent web business. Maybe it was $5 million. We had a catalog business. But, you know, the day I walked in the door, you know, we had full price stores. We had factory outlet stores. And then you had the catalog and the web. And everybody hated one another. <laughs> None of the channels, you know, everybody thought that they were cannibalizing one another um, until the store people realized that, you know, what happens when you send a catalog out, it drives people into a store. Or when you send an email out, it drives people into a store. And it wasn't until we were able to execute what you just talked about, showing them through the data that a best custom, our best customers were people who were buying from a cross channel. Um, then they started to understand it. And um, now I'm back doing some work at uh, Brooks Brothers again. Hopefully some of that is <laughs> passed. Um, we don't have that same, um, you know, silo uh, structure. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it was definitely 
for me to say that every day was perfect and that we didn't have, you know, some um, tension between the different business divisions, you know, that would not be true. But we knew that it was super important to have be in lockstep with our wholesale partners to make sure that we weren't um, following a different promotional calendar, if you will, and making sure that our stores felt included in the growth of e-commerce and somewhat responsible for it. You've been on the marketing side for a number of businesses that have had strong wholesale um, businesses. From your perspective, how do you deal with with that when you know you have very strong brand purpose and brand story, but because you're wholesale, you're relying on others to sometimes tell that story. How, how do you keep it consistent and controlled? Right. Well, I was I was dedicated to the the Polo Retail Group division, but I had a counterpart. Um, I was senior vice president of marketing over Polo Retail Group, which included factory stores, ultimately um, our full price Ralph Lauren stores like the Rhinelander Mansion on Madison Avenue, RalphLauren.com, and at the time Rugby and Rugby.com, which was an amazing brand, but rest in peace, had to shutter its doors. Uh, but I had a counterpart who essentially had my job on the wholesale side of the business. And it was truly about staying in lockstep. And, and luckily, Ralph Lauren is a highly, at least it was when I was there, a highly matrixed organizational structure. So I always had a dotted line into David and Mr. Lauren, David Lauren and Mr. Lauren. And I had my, my non-dotted, my straight line into the president of Polo Retail Group. So I was constantly, you know, every day consisted of some meetings were about the art and some meetings were about the science and it was really about working um, together. But under David Lauren, we were all part of the same team. So I think it was necessary to be a matrixed organization and it helped us staying in lockstep and not functioning as complete silos. So you leave Polo and now you go to another brand where there's a strong founder uh, still actively involved in the business. That was Tori Birch. Uh, you went there as chief marketing officer. Correct. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Sure. It was a newly created position. Tori and her team had grown the uh, business through uh, amazingly well through, I will call organic growth. So there was a lot of word of mouth. There were store events. There was product placement. Tori was asked to be on the Oprah show to um, as one of the next biggest things in fashion. And, you know, ironically, the Tori Birch, the brand and Facebook celebrate the same birthday of February of 2004. So literally that it was a brand that embraced social media from the beginning and grew up with social media. So we were always a little bit ahead of the curve, I think, in terms of how we leverage social. But as I joined the organization, it was really about keeping that word of mouth and that organic growth in place, but building a very robust marketing portfolio that now included Google AdWords and direct mail and a more sophisticated email, targeted email program and all, all the different channels of marketing so that we had a true portfolio and we could pull different levers and rely on different channels when others were not working as well, if you will. So it allowed us to 
scale the business. You know, we were one of, I think we were the first fashion brand to hit a billion dollars in less than 10 years. And the business grew fivefold during my time there for five years as, as chief marketing officer. So it was extremely exciting. Were there mis any mistakes that you made, you know, at Polo um, that you learned that you felt like I'm not doing that again in my next gig? And now you get to Tory and you're thinking about what I'm not going to do, but the things that I'm, I'm going to focus on. I can't think of anything specifically at Ralph Lauren, but there's a general theme in my career that as I look back and ponder any mistakes I've made, it's usually been related to not speaking up when I felt passionately about something or I, because I've always overseen database marketing, customer insights. So I've always had been very rooted in data or, you know, so most of my mistakes have been associated with not speaking up when I saw that a decision was being made that I didn't believe was in the best interest of the business, the customer, uh, or the, you know, the employees in some cases. And that has been a general theme. And I don't do that anymore. <laughs> I can say that for sure. And I also grew up through, you know, I was a, a young director as part of the limited organization. And, you know, this was the 90s. So it was very different than today. I also grew up at a time where there was not a lot of conversation, if any, about equality in the workplace and so forth. And so I also look back and, and wish I was a bit more vocal and, and thoughtful about, about that. So how do you, I, I know you're involved in, in a bunch of mentoring, you know, kinds of opportunities and we'll come to that, but, you know, just as, as it pertains to speaking your mind, how would you counsel somebody, you know, in a, in a situation mid management, how would you counsel them to, you know, speak their mind if they felt like there was something that was being done that, they either had a different perspective on or they had different information about. Right. Well, now I know as a, as a leader, I've been in the C-suite for a number of years now, and I look for debate, spirited debate within the conference room among my team. And I encourage people to speak up. And that is most often what effective leaders that are trustworthy, of course, expect from their team. So when I do mentoring and, and I do quite a bit of it, and it's a very fulfilling part of my career, um, I do spend time on encouraging young professionals to have a voice and not be afraid of putting their ideas out on the table. The devil's in the details. You've probably heard that phrase time and time again in your professional life. Projects get started with great intentions, but you no longer have the time to pay attention to the little things that can make the difference between success and failure. At Details Interactive, you can discuss your business with a seasoned direct-to-consumer marketing executive who has helped launch and grow web businesses and integrate multi-channel marketing initiatives. Learn more at detailsinteractive.com. You know, so much of, of the work that you likely did at, at those two stops that we talked about um, were very, there was a lot of technology involved. And I'm sure you were surrounded by some, you know, very good technology partners. But, you know, having been on the marketing side for as, as long as I have, you know, you can become enamored with the shiny new object. <laughs> you know, we, we both have been called upon, you know, by, you know, tons of, of providers, you know, hey, you need this, this next thing. H how do you think through all of the things that come across your, your table and, and you making the decision of, yes, I'm going to, you know, 
consider it or no, I'm not. Right. So there have been many shiny things that have entered the space in all of the brands that I've worked for. And I have had the fortune of working with amazing digital architects and technology professionals. So for me, um, the test was always certainly if I was the ultimate decision maker or if I was a strong influencer in the decision making, it had to make sense either from a revenue driving perspective or even a PR perspective, especially when you're working for brands that conjure emotion and stand for something bigger. You know, the customer's buying into something. Um, it's not purely transactional. There's a dream behind it. There's an aspiration behind it. So um, especially at Tory Burch, um, and I learned this from my time at Ralph Lauren, I was very focused on making sure that we were seen as a brand that drove innovation. You know, when L2 would come out with its index of top 10 brands um, in terms of digital prowess, I could not be more proud of my team for being in the top five many years. And we were sort of seen as a poster child for how to drive innovation. And we got credit for it. So there was, even though some of the things that we did didn't have a direct revenue driving aspect to them, they certainly positioned us um, strongly within the digital space and that helps with investors and um, other parts of the business that can play out over a longer term. Yeah, it, it feels like there's so many retailers that, you know, have such a uh, strong, you know, ROI. Um, look, we all have to make money. I get it. But there are just some things that feel like they are right to do for your digital business or for your physical retail stores uh, that you may not be able to uh, easily identify an ROI, but they certainly are the right things to do for the business. Exactly. So you you had a, a nice run at uh, Tory. How long were you there for? I was there from 2009 to 2014, so five solid years. Uh, that's great. And then um, you had a, a stop at Chico's. Uh, so that business was somewhat struggling, I guess, by the time you you got there. Is that true? Uh, no, I actually wasn't nope. struggling when I got there. It started struggling shortly after uh, my time there. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not taking credit for that. Yeah. That, just happened, that just happened to be how the timing worked out. Right. And so what were you brought there to do? That was also a newly created position. So there's also this theme of um, I'm sort of an agent of change and, and transformation and influence and education. And, and um, I had some, I've had amazing mentors throughout my career and and also some really strong friends that play in the recruiting space. And I was hearing from many of those mentors and friends that I was ready to be a CEO. And the truth of the matter was that I was managing an end-to-end P&L as a chief marketing officer. So I was essentially a divisional president um, and had been for five years. And so I was encouraged to pursue that. And I was I was in a position, much like I was at Ralph Lauren, where I'd kind of hit the ceiling in terms of where I could move. And, you know, it was a tough decision because both of those experiences were wonderful and I was super happy. But sometimes you have to move out to move up. And I um, met Dave Dyer, who was, you know, multiple time retail veteran, CEO, several of our mutual friends actually had worked for him back in the day of Land's End where he was CEO twice. He did a turnaround at Tommy Hilfiger. He ran HSN and then he had been running Chico's very successfully for about seven years when I started. And we met over dinner in New York City and I went into the meeting, not 
you know, just thinking I, I, I've always wanted to meet him because I've heard wonderful things. And I walked out of the dinner thinking I have more to learn from him and it would be an honor to work for him. So we worked together. He, he was his, uh, you know, in-house human resources team and put together a role that was new to the company where I was president of digital commerce. And for those who don't know, Chico's FAS consists of Chico's, the brand, White House Black Market, and Soma Intimate. So we had three separate brands. And so I came in as president of digital commerce over all three brands and chief marketing officer over all three brands. So it was this idea of centralizing and building digital commerce proficiency within each brand so that it wasn't functioning as a separate part of the company. And then as CMO, it was about identifying the learnings and the wins that we are, we're having in each individual brand and making sure that those marketing leaders were talking to each other, sharing those wins, because at the end of the day, we're a public company. And when we win as Chico's FAS, everyone wins and our shareholders win. Interesting. So in, in that kind of a, of a role, was everything centralized from a marketing perspective and, and product was decentralized? Actually, the senior vice presidents of marketing that resided within each brand and also had a dotted line to the brand presidents reported to me. You know, that was a very thoughtful decision about the role to identify ways that we can um, leverage the fact that we're a multi-brand business and identify expense, you know, expense opportunities, expense reduction opportunities, um, different strategies and marketing, things that were working in loyalty programs and really leverage that across the enterprise. Interesting. So it was another matrixed uh, organization, uh, which you seem to have had uh, a few times in your career. Yes. So let's talk about, you know, we're, we're sitting here uh, right now, third week in September, uh, you know, we're still knee deep in uh, the pandemic, but there's been lots of change in retail, uh, both from a digital and a, and a physical retail perspective. I know that you follow closely, you know, what's going on. Um, what have you seen that has stood out for you that, you know, maybe something that's just not going to change, you know, going forward? You know, you've heard lots of stories around, you know, how digital got accelerated by, you know, three years, five years, 10 years. Um, you know, what have you seen in, in your conversations uh, with folks? Right. So I spoke a little bit earlier about how this believe in, in all things digital and what is now called Omni. When I was younger, it was called multi-channel or cross-channel. And, um, you know, that was not always a popular position to be the advocate for that part of the business. And I hate to say it, but um, what happened with, with COVID was a big, I told you so, for those who, who were not, not believers, unfortunately. And it pains me. I've, my entire career has been in retail. And every time I saw a headline that doors were being shuttered or, or a brand was filing for bankruptcy, and we continue to see those headlines, it was heartbreaking. Um, but I think it was very clear to see the retail businesses that were bullish and invested in digital and omni-channel, what I, what I will refer to as agility, they were much less affected. Um, there are certain brands who were able to keep their stores open in having their managers and small teams working in the stores and leveraging the store as a mini distribution center because they were set up for buy online, pick up and store. And they were easily, um, they were able to easily shift to 
curbside pickup, for example, and brands that did not have that agility and had not invested in it really struggled. So, you know, I think in terms of the big theme of the change, things that used to seem like a choice or, you know, a decision to be made or, or investments to, to be prioritized among other investments. And, and as retailers, we're constantly um, having to prioritize what we're going to do when. These omni-channel proficiencies are now table stakes. It's a non-negotiable. And that is what will fuel this next three years. I think we're going to see more and more retailers, um, unfortunately, probably not succeed. Um, but I believe we'll see a lot of brands that really set the example of how to think differently. What, what are you seeing um, with respect to holiday? So, you know, we're now two months uh, out. Um, are you expecting people to go back to stores? Are you expecting, we've had lots of conversations about online shopping happening earlier for the holidays. So, you know, still there might be a, you know, a strong Black Friday online and, and that whole, you know, Thanksgiving weekend into Cyber Monday. Um, but perhaps it might be a little flatter um, simply because it might, it would be more spread out. Any thoughts on that? It's going to be really interesting. I've really heard uh, sort of two different camps of thought on that. Um, those who are truly omni, again, seem to be cautiously optimistic. A potential shift in more dollars spent on gifts and gifting um, than travel, perhaps, as families would often travel during the holiday season. There, you know, many are going to be hunkering down at home, and that could translate to increased gift giving. Um, the economic uncertainty, the election, all all of these things are factors that are unknown on how they will affect um, our industry, certainly. But um, I don't think we can sit here today in September and accurately predict. A lot of the other thing that people are waiting for is the shift in the weather and the shift into fall and winter weather and how that's going to, how COVID will be affected by that. Will it spread more? Will it spread less? Um, you know, will we continue to see these outbreaks that will make consumers certainly more cautious and probably careful and, and not lining up on Black Friday and for doorbusters at, at their favorite stores. I don't know, but I certainly have been hearing a lot of chatter about it and uh, predictions. As somebody who spent so much of your career in apparel, so, you know, the, the pandemic started in March, so spring and summer goods that may have already been in store or on their way, um, presumably are still sitting in DCs and in back rooms and in stores. What does that bode for spring of next year? Great question. I think some, some brands have timeless inventory that they will be able to Many of them had had time, you know, they, even though the product life cycle is, is rather long in most uh, apparel companies in terms of when you order the goods and when they are actually delivered, you're usually working two seasons ahead at least. I think in terms of spring of 2021, a lot of retailers and brands were able to pivot and um, salvage probably some of the goods that they weren't even able to sell um, certainly through stores in spring of 2020. And I also think that we're going to see a huge shift uh, in design and category preference. 
because we've all shifted to this more, the shift to a more casual workplace was already happening, um, I think industry-wide. And when you see it happen in, in high fashion, you know, you, you know there's a real shift going on. So I think uh, we'll continue to see shifts in categories with more casual wear, you know, less penetration of, of dressing up and going out and those types of things. And, and I think that will be true. Unfortunately, I think it'll be true, you know, throughout 2021. So you, you tell me that you've been very busy. Mickey B LLC. Tell me yeah. about it. So um, I'm enjoying what I'll call a portfolio career right now. Um, after working pretty tirelessly running a startup for three years, I stepped down to, you know, focus on my family really and take a bit of a breather. I've been on the hamster wheel for my entire career and never truly taken a break. So, and then what, what I found was that when, you know, when you take a break, you start getting calls for other things when you've been in the industry as long as I have. So I've had the opportunity and doing some advisory work, advising some startups on everything from raising capital to predicting marketing cost, cost of acquisition of new customers. Um, I'm also working with some solution providers in this space and helping them finesse and um, perfect their pitch because I've been the decision maker many times when new solution providers come in and, and present their solution that can help me drive revenue. And um, I can certainly speak to how busy these executives are and how to cut through that noise. I'm doing some consulting work for some existing omni-channel brands on transformation, those that perhaps had not invested historically or their business model is actually changing and they need to pivot through organizational change and and investments in greater investments in technology and infrastructure. I sit on the board of directors of ShopRunner and I'm an advisory board member for Evergreen Trading, which is a media company in the trade space and another company called Viper, which is a retail analytics company. And I most recently uh, completed a course. I served as an adjunct professor teaching a marketing analytics course for an MBA program um, that was purely online. So that was my first foray into a professorship and it was truly enjoyable. That's great. So you've been uh, very busy. That, that's, that's amazing. Uh, you talked about you know, mentoring. Um, I know that's uh, something that we have in common. I've done quite a bit of it. Uh, you have as well. So you know, talk about how you got involved in that, what, what you might be doing today from a mentoring perspective. Sure. So I, had, I, I can think of Sarah Gallagher, who was my first boss at Ralph Lauren, she was a true mentor to not only myself, but many members of our, our leadership team and, you know, was there for counsel and advisement, not only about work and uh, how to excel in your job, but also, you know, the balance of work and life and raising children. I had both of my boys when I was working at Ralph Lauren. So that really made an impact on me. And, um, and so I've made it a big theme of my career where I've carved out at least 10 per, 5 to 10% of my time, even when I was working full-time in a job, carving that out to make sure that I'm taking time to mentor others. And that can be anything from, you know, answering a LinkedIn from a student who aspires to work at the brand that I was working at within my department to other women in the industry who see me speak, 
at, at an event or so forth. And um, certainly the people, um, many of the women and men who have worked on my teams in the past. And so, you know, I guess it's a pay it forward way of thinking about it because it was so helpful to me. And Sarah was the first, but I've had several over the years. And, you know, that relationship is invaluable and I truly believe in it. Uh, we're coming down to the end of the show here. Um, I like to do a two-minute drill, a bunch of questions, seven e exactly, uh, to ask you. One or two words, uh, quick answers. I'm going to start now, okay? Okay. All right. A brand that you admire or that inspires you? Nike. Remains relevant, uh, never complacent, and constantly reinventing. Cool. Favorite app on your phone? Well, it was open table for a while. <laughs> Once COVID hit, um, it's now more about news content, music apps. So I love smart news because it consolidates all my news into one place. And then I'm loving Audible, Sonos, and Sirius XM and Spotify. All right, music file. Uh, the last website other than Amazon that you shopped from? Chaser Brands, following my love of music, I have a huge collection of vintage rock t-shirts <laughs> so and i continue to build that collection okay we're learning a lot about you mickey <laughs> something that you're not good at but that you wish that you were speaking multiple languages ah, okay a charitable organization that you're passionate about anything to do with the environment and cancer that hits close to home if you had one superpower what would it be to fix the environment and other than family, what's your most prized possession? My two yellow Labradors and um, my collection of photographs and, of course, my health. There you go. Uh, where can people reach out to you on social media, uh, Mickey, if they want to connect with you? LinkedIn is definitely the best place to reach out as a result of this engagement. Okay. Well, great. Thanks for taking the time today. It was nice to see you again. Nice to catch up and say hello to your husband. Tell him I, uh, I say hi and uh, wish you the best of luck going forward. Likewise. Thanks so much, Mark. Appreciate it. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Mickey Berardelli for coming on the Marketing Playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, the way to advance your career is to not be afraid to take a leap. Take a chance at something new that will hopefully challenge and stimulate you. Sometimes to move up, you have to move out. Number two, don't be afraid to speak your mind respectfully. You heard Mickey talk about how her career has had this general theme that took her a bit to realize that she did not always speak up when she felt passionately about something that either impacted customers or employees. Even seasoned executives sometimes take the path of least resistance, but you're being compensated for your perspective. And number three, Marketing is a wonderful balance of art and science. It's okay to have some tension between the two sides. It's healthy. If you're in a senior role, you can foster this tension to ultimately improve the results of your business. Each side pushing the other is a good thing. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Details Interact and learn more at detailsinteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details.